Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. All right, let's turn to God's Word and let's begin to look into Luke chapter 19. This morning we're looking at verses 28 through 40. We'll begin in verse 28, Luke chapter 19. This is Jesus speaking. And we just got done reading about the parable of the ten minas, and Larry so helpfully explained that to us. And now, as Jesus finishes up saying these things, he says, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners, or in the original language it says, its lords, said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice, for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees of the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Let's pray. God, as we approach your word this morning, God, I pray that we would come before you with an eagerness. Lord, that we would not approach distracted or weary, but God, there would be just a hunger and desire and longing to see you and to hear your voice to us. So Lord, we pray, open our ears. Open our eyes. Give us the faith to receive your word with joy and excitement because we know that you are speaking. And Lord, we pray this morning that you would remove from us any distraction help us to fix our eyes upon you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In this passage, Jesus is coming down the Mount of Olives. And he has come to Jerusalem for a purpose. And if you can picture where he's at now, he's he's on the Mount of Olives, and the Mount of Olives goes down into the Kidron Valley, then goes back up again into Jerusalem, 
And so as they're going down the Mount of Olives, you can see Jerusalem in the, in the, in the distance. And he's come here for a purpose. There are a number, there are probably thousands of other pilgrims coming to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. But Jesus has come there for a purpose, unlike anyone has come there for. As we've read back in chapter 9 and verse 22, Jesus says, I'm going to die, I'm going to give my life for a ransom, I'm going to die, and on the third day be raised again. And he's traveling to Jerusalem with a purpose in mind. He's come there to accomplish redemption for us, for his people. He's on his way to accomplish redemption. And so you can picture this scene of the crowds of people surrounding Jesus as he's, he's on his way down the road. And he's sitting on a donkey with people spreading their coats out before him. This would, this would be similar to what we do with the red carpet. When someone important or famous comes, they, they roll out the red carpet, don't they? In the same way, they'd lay their, their coats out onto the ground so this person would go across on the coats. And as they begin to travel on this road and as people are surrounding Jesus and throwing their coats on the ground, a song of praise erupts. And as all the disciples and the people begin to gather around, they begin to sing God's praises. And they begin to sing from the Psalms. They take a verse out of Psalm 118 and they say, "Blessed." this is what Psalm 118 says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Except they substitute he for the king. So they begin to sing, Blessed is the king, capital K, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. There is a song of praise erupting from the people. And it's almost reminiscent of what the angels begin to sing as Jesus first entered the world. They begin to sing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he has pleased. And as Jesus begins to enter Jerusalem, a similar song begins to erupt from the people. Glory to God. But not everyone is excited. As praise is erupting, as people are throwing their coats down, as this huge multitude of people are drawing near to Jerusalem, not everybody's singing. Not everybody's joining in the celebration. There's a group of people who are seeing and are part of what's going on, but they don't like what's happening. It's the Pharisees, believe it or not. It's the Pharisees. They see what's going on, and they begin to understand the implications of what is being said. This isn't just about a guy riding and people are praising God. They understand what the people are saying when they say, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, that this has huge implications. This is no mere man who's showing up. And so they turn to Jesus and they say, Look, teacher, they don't just say, Hey, would you just tell everyone to quiet down? They say, would you rebuke your disciples? We need to straighten some things out here, Jesus. They're ascribing to you things that they ascribe to no man, that no man is deserving of. I want you to silence them and to set them straight. 
They're not joining in. See, in their eyes, Jesus wasn't a king. He was just a guy riding on a donkey. He wasn't the king. And for the Pharisees, they had completely missed the unfolding of the revelation of who Jesus Christ is. Now, the disciples didn't get a whole lot right. But they got this right. They got this right. See, what they understood about Jesus Christ is is he asked them to go into the next town and he told them, hey, look, there'll be a donkey sitting over here and someone's going to say something to you and here's what you need to say back and they're going to give you the donkey and no problem. They found it just as he said he would. They were probably like, man, this stuff happens all the time. This is Jesus we're talking about. But they had seen Jesus do this and many times over. See, Jesus had not only told them and understood things that they could never possibly understand, but he had cleansed lepers. He had healed paralytics. He had healed people with withered hands. He had opened the eyes of the blind. He had healed people with epilepsy. and He would raised people from the dead. He cast out demons from men, women, and children. He calmed violent storms with just a word. He would feed 5,000 people with a few fish and a couple of loaves. He had taught like no one they had ever heard before or since. He had loved and embraced the broken and rejected and forgotten. He would predict his own death. He would offer forgiveness and salvation to all who would come to him in faith. This was unlike anyone they had ever seen before. This was no mere man sitting on a donkey. This was God Almighty. And the disciples recognized Jesus for who he was and understood that this this person riding on this donkey was God Almighty, worthy of our praise and worship and adoration. And And Jesus said this. I love this because he says this to the Pharisees are trying to silence his praise. He says, look, if you were quiet, if I told these people to be quiet, all creation recognizes who I am. All creation would, would cry out in worship. You can't silence my praise. And by matter of implication, look, even the rocks know who I am. Why don't you see who I am? Even the rocks know it. Who Jesus Christ is. He says, my praise will not and cannot be silenced. All creation will scream out in glory and worship to Jesus Christ. Now as I read this, I think the Pharisees had seen Jesus do some pretty amazing things themselves. It wasn't like Jesus was in some back room somewhere doing some, some miracles. The Pharisees had been with Jesus Christ as the paralytic was lowered through the ceiling. And Jesus reached out and said, your sins are forgiven. To which they said, there's no way you should ever say that because only God can forgive sins. And then Jesus says, guess what? Just so you know I'm telling the truth, take up your mat and go home. To which the guy jumps up and heads for home. 
They had seen him in the synagogue heal the man with the withered hand. They had heard Jesus' teach and they'd, they'd seen him offer forgiveness to the woman who was weeping at his feet during the dinner party. My question is, do we see Jesus for who he really is? Because the disciples and the Pharisees had both seen Jesus do some pretty amazing things. But the conclusion that the Pharisees came to was that he was just a guy riding on a donkey. Where the disciples knew that he wasn't just a guy riding on a donkey, but he is the Lord Almighty. And as though they've, it's kind of convoluted for them right now, it's going to come clear soon. But they understood the implications of what was happening. Do we see Jesus for who he really is? Do we see Jesus for who he really is? And I think to answer that question, we need to answer this question. How do we respond to King Jesus? Because I can come to you and tell you that I love my kids, right? But if I don't spend any time with my kids, and the time that I am at home, I'm frustrated and annoyed and try to push them away as much as I can, you would say, hey, look, you would say that you love your kids, but I don't, I don't know what you mean, because when you're at home, it, does, it seems like there's a bother to you, and you're really put off by them, and you don't want to spend any time with them. So the way I respond to my kids answers the question of, what do I really think about my kids? And I think in the same way, the way in which we respond to Jesus Christ will indicate for us in our own lives and in our hearts what do we think about Jesus Christ and who he is. I just want to look through a few things with us this morning. Ways to determine how we respond to Jesus Christ. And so we're going to go back and look through some of the things earlier in Luke that we've gone through in the past weeks and months and years to see what has Jesus said about himself that we should be responding to to help us understand what do we think of Jesus Christ. First thing is this. Jesus calls us to full surrender. Full surrender. Now, the Queen of England, she lives in a very, very nice castle has unbelievable amounts of money, has international recognition, has the title, but there's one little problem. She's got no power. It's just a courtesy, right? She can't veto anything. She can't vote for anything. She has no decision-making power over the government. So the question is, is Jesus like the Queen of England in our lives? Or is he the king of the universe? Is, we, we like the idea of the king. We like the idea of the Queen of England and the monarchy and, and all, these, the, all the things that go with it. And we celebrate it and the birth of the baby and all that kind of stuff. It's great. But it's just a big show, right? It really means very little. So glad no one from England is here right now. They'd probably be real upset at me. But our response to Jesus is one of full surrender. He has decision-making power, doesn't he? He has the veto in our lives. He has a say in the way in which we live our lives. And I wonder for us, as we think about things, is he just the queen? Or is he the king of everything? 
Luke 13, 3 and 5, read this. Unless you repent. Unless you turn away from your old way of life, from doing things your way, from making your own decisions, from living life the way you want to live your life, unless you repent and turn from that and turn towards Jesus Christ, you will perish. There's no other route. You either repent or you perish. There is a full surrender to Jesus Christ that He is calling you and I to. That He says, look, the way in which you live your life is one of full surrender to Jesus Christ in every area of your life, in everything that we do, in our thoughts, in our work, in our giving, in the way we serve, in the way we love our family and our children and our neighbors, in all those things, we live a life fully surrendered to Jesus Christ. Have we given Jesus the right to call the shots in our lives? Are there areas of our lives where we have said, look, you can be the king in these areas, and then you can be the queen in these other areas. Have we fully surrendered? Number two, we give Jesus, and Jesus calls us to full obedience. So full surrender, now he calls us to full obedience. June 17, 1998. Robert Comferschmid, we'll call him Robbie from here on out, an 81-year-old with no flying experience and his 52-year-old pilot friend, Wesley Sickle, were flying from Indianapolis to Muncie in a Cessna 172 single-engine plane. During the flight, Wesley, the pilot, slumped over the controls and died. The plane began to take a nosedive until Robert grabbed the controls and lifted the plane up, to which he immediately got on the radio and said, Help! I'm in big trouble here. Well, two pilots nearby heard, what, heard his call of distress and began to slowly walk him through the process of steering the plane, of, of, of how to climb, and ultimately how to land. It's nice to be able to keep the plane straight, but you've got to be able to land at some point. And so they directed him to the, the nearest airport to which all the emergency vehicles gathered around waiting for what, was, what would appear to be disaster, impending disaster. And so as they began to walk him through the process of landing, finally he got the courage and he brought the plane down and as the plane hit the ground, it exploded and he died. No, I'm just kidding. It's, what an awful ending. I'm just kidding. The plane bounced a couple times the tail hit down, and then he ended up landing in a, a, a patch of soggy grass off to the side of the runway, fully alive, fully well, probably scared to death. But he did it. He landed it. See, he, he understood something. That obedience to the two other pilots was vital for his life or death. He understood that, look, listening to these guys and what they had to say in their directions wasn't just a good idea. They weren't just good suggestions this was life or death on the line. And he understood that, and he listened and obeyed and did what they said and came down for a safe landing. Proverbs fourteen twelve reads this. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. 
There is a way that seems right to us, in our own flesh, in our own thinking, that seems right. Look, this is the way I should go. I've got this all figured out. Don't worry. I'm in control. But in the end, it leads to death. Luke eleven twenty eight. Jesus says this, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. This is a matter of life and death. These aren't good suggestions. Maybe just Jesus coming and saying, oh, it'd be so great if you would just kind of listen every once in a while and I might throw some good ideas your way. This is a matter for us of life and death, even more so than that airplane. Because this is talking about our eternal destiny is at stake. Life or death hangs in the balance. Full obedience means that in every circumstance, God's word trumps my desires, my feelings, and the way that I think I should go. God's word has the final say in everything. Jesus' word has the final say in all of life. He is like those pilots calling out and saying, I know the way you should go. I know what you need to do. Trust me. If you will just listen to me, I will bring you home with a safe landing. Doing it your own way and your own understanding will only result in disaster. Trust me. Listen to my voice. Hear my call. I know the way home. And he calls each one of us to that. So first we have full surrender. Jesus is not the queen. He's the king. We have full obedience to Jesus, what he calls us to, just like that airplane pilot. And lastly, we see this, extravagant worship. And as we talk about worship, I want us to understand worship isn't just about singing some songs on a Sunday morning. Worship is a way of life. It encompasses all that we are, all that we do. We can leave this place and be worshiping all week long without any music being played. And the decisions that we make, and the way that we treat one another is the way we treat the people around us. That's an act of worship. As we sacrifice our lives and live our lives before Almighty God in obedience, that is saying, Jesus, you are more valuable and you are greater and you are more majestic than anything else in this world. As I live my life before you, that is an act of worship. So we offer ourselves to him fully in worship. As the disciples were putting their coats on the donkey, they placed Jesus on the animal, they laid their coats, they put Jesus on the coats on the donkey, they begin to spread it out. Verse 37 says, They begin to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. I wonder how we would describe our worship to the Lord. So we understand it's the whole week, but what about just this morning? How would we describe our worship? Would it be one of extravagance? Would it be wholehearted devotion? Or would it be one that was disengaged, distracted, apathetic, quiet? Would that be a description of our worship? Now understand, Sunday morning is just a, it's a microcosm of the rest of our lives. But I wonder, just in this, fresh in our memory, what was our experience? I really felt, as we sang those songs this morning, I just felt the presence of God in this place. I just felt like, man, Jesus was being glorified in our singing, and he was here in our midst. 
I think so often I can just be disengaged, distracted by the kids or whatever's going on. My worship is not extravagant. Now, as we read through these things, I want us to remember one thing. That Jesus Christ has made a way for those whose life is not one of full obedience, not one of full surrender, not of extravagant worship. He's made a way for us to draw near to him still. It's not as if we can fully obey, fully surrender, and give extravagant worship, and then Jesus says, okay, now you've got it, you can draw near to me, and I'll be near to you. It's as if he says, look, the purpose that I've come for was to redeem people who have been completely disobedient, who've been unengaged in worship, and have surrendered very little to me. I've come for those people. Because that's who you and I are. That's who I am. I am not one who fully has surrendered my life to Christ, who walks in full obedience to Jesus, who gives extravagant worship every minute of every day. That's who I am. And the good news for me and for us is that Jesus Christ has come to redeem a people who, who give half-hearted worship. He says, I can redeem you and bring you near to me and I can begin to change you and work in you in such a way that you are not the same yesterday as you are today. That week by week there's a growing love and desire and obedience and surrender and worship to him because of his grace and his goodness to us. This is why he has come. Not to somehow collect the the righteous, He's come to redeem the broken and the lost and the sinner. That's who we are. And that's what he's come to do. I love this because he comes riding humbly on a donkey. This has huge implications. Zechariah 9, 9 says this. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt the foal of a donkey see when kings would come to a, a, a city in peace they would come riding on a donkey this is what kings would do we see that when in back in solomon's day we see it during jesus's lifetime when kings would come to a town in peace they'd come riding on a donkey but if they came riding on a horse with the armies behind them, it meant something different. They weren't coming for peace. They were coming for war. And I love this because Jesus is coming to his people. He's coming to us. He's coming on a donkey. And he's saying, look, I bring peace with me. I bring peace. There is, there is an opportunity for us to respond to him today in faith, believing that he died for our sins, that he is the way of salvation that not only cleanses us, but brings us near to him. and Cleans us and forgives us. But here's the reality of it. He won't always come riding on a donkey. There will be a day, we see this in Revelation 19. You don't have to turn there, but let me read these words to you in Revelation 19. The day will come when he's no longer seated on a donkey, but he's on a horse. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called 
faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flames of fire, and on his head are many diadems. That's like a crown. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe that is dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, are following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's not riding on a donkey when that time comes. He's coming to bring judgment for those who have refused to surrender and place their faith in Jesus Christ. And that is going to be a terrifying day. But we get to today have the opportunity to respond to Him in faith, trusting Him, drawing near to Him, asking Him to forgive us, asking Him to help us. This means for us clinging to Jesus with all of our lives. We talked about full surrender, full obedience, and extravagant worship today. If we see in our lives areas where that is not the case, the hope for us is this. It's repentance. It is repentance. It is wholehearted repentance. Jesus, there are areas of my life that these things are not happening in disobedience to your word. And I need your grace to change. And I need your grace to help me. And I need you to draw near to me and help me and speak to me and reveal to me what needs to take place. And the good news is, he promises us that as we draw near to him, he draws near to us. That is the good news for us today. I want us, as we close with communion, to consider, are there areas of my life where Jesus is just the queen. He's not the king. Are there areas of my life where I've, I've approached Jesus and have just kind of come to him as a nice person with advice, not the one with life-giving direction and guidance? And then lastly, is our worship extravagant? Do we surround him with loud shouts of praise and worship. And I want us to remember, as we come before him today, we have the hope of repentance and redemption. That is what we have. We can draw near to Jesus. You guys can begin to pass that out if you like. We can draw near to Jesus because he's made a way for us. This is the good news of the gospel that we need to hear. Jesus Christ has made himself available to us. He calls us to himself, cleanses us and forgives us. And he does not allow us to remain the same any longer. Thanks, Sydney. So I want us just to consider as, as the communion elements are being passed out, what are the areas of my life that need further surrender and obedience and extravagant worship? And ask God to change us. Ask God to give us that hope. And if there are areas where those aren't taking place, we come before him and we just 
lay our hearts before him, praised and in worship. Let's take a moment in prayer, asking the Lord to help us.